Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously on Truth and Justice. I just don't see this as something that was a last minute murder, intentional murder of Jim. I think it was an intentional home invasion burglary that went very much awry because Jim was not easily controlled. And that tells me that this was not done by experts that they may have done this kind of thing. This may be a pattern that they do. However, they're not real geniuses at it. And I would expect that they made other mistakes along the way in other events if they did more of these kind of home invasion burglaries. Today is the day where we put analysis and theories to the test. When I consulted with retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi on this case, his conclusions were that everything about this crime indicated to him that this was a clear case of a home invasion, as he put it, gone terribly awry. Now at trial, Colleen Barnett made it a point to compare Celestina Rossi's education and training to Billy Belk's. Well, if we're comparing resumes, I'd like to see how Ms. Rossi's stacks up to Clementi's. Jim first went to law school and became a prosecutor in New York City, where he prosecuted felony cases for years before deciding to try to tackle the issue of violence from the front end. He made a move from the courthouse to the FBI, where he became one of the world's most accomplished and well-known profilers. As a supervisory special agent, he spent over 20 years personally investigating and consulting on literally thousands of violent crimes. Jim has seen it all. So how does Clementi's profile of Jim's murder compare to Rossi's assessment? Rossi and Colleen Barnett share the same view of the Melgar crime scene. The only possible explanation for Jim's murder is that Sandy killed her husband and staged the scene to make it look like a home invasion. Because it doesn't make sense that home invaders would choose a house in a nice neighborhood where people are home and not bring anything with them to carry stolen items out of the house. Well, what if I told you that that does make sense? In fact, I'm wondering if Colleen Barnett would change her view of the case if I could prove to her that this being a home invasion gone wrong makes perfect sense. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
much to the chagrin of Barnett. Billy Belk was able to get the message across during his testimony that he has personally worked murder scenes in Houston where home invaders aborted their plan and left the items they were planning to steal behind because an unplanned murder occurred. So this is something that happens. There's no question about that. And Jim Clemente believes that if the group of home invaders that attacked the Melgars in 2012 did this before, without murdering anyone, they likely would have made some stupid mistakes. When I asked Colleen Barnett why she believed that Sandy killed Jim, this is what she had to say. So I went to the house and I uh, was able to go inside and get an idea about the neighborhood, the house, where things were situated, because there were a lot of crime scene photos that you can't really, I mean, you can look at them, but being inside the house gives you a better understanding of how big things are, where things are, what kind of views she might have had in that situation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, um... When you go in that neighborhood, it's it is it's a quiet little neighborhood that's um, very there are a lot of trees. There's it's it's very um, soft. It's quiet. Um, they lived on a street that was off the main road. Um, the, I think it was like the second or third house in on, on the on the street that it was on. All the houses were nice. It was just quiet, and it it didn't it didn't strike me as a house that anybody would naturally pick to do a robbery, number one. Mm-hmm. So, and the fact that it was in that neighborhood that they hadn't had any type of robberies or any type of crime like that before. And when you have to think about what a person who wants to go and try and burglarize that house, what they're looking at, the Melgars, according to Sandra, were awake, and it was like, I think, midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, so they had four dogs that were barking, and they were in the jacuzzi tub talking about how much they loved each other for two hours. Why would a burglar go into a house in that neighborhood where the people were not only there, but they were awake and had barking dogs? That doesn't make sense. Well, let me tell you what does make sense. Several weeks ago, I was researching other similar home invasions in Harris County. And I wanted to know more about the crime that we discussed a few months ago, the Kingwood home invasion. I put out a call on the Truth and Justice fan page for someone from the Houston area to help me out. I've been trying to contact the Kingwood victims for weeks with no luck. I needed someone to go knock on their door and deliver a letter to them. Houston listener Tony stepped up and volunteered for the mission. I emailed him the letter, he printed it out, and he hit the road. About an hour later, I got a phone call from the victim. She interviewed with me and shared her story, but then later decided she didn't want her voice recorded. So in order to protect her privacy, I'll be referring to her as Isabel in today's episode. Isabel spoke with me for almost an hour, and what she had to say sent shivers down my spine. So let's first discuss the neighborhood. To begin with, let's talk geography. Isabel's house in Kingwood is in the northeast corner of Harris County. The woman that was caught, arrested, and convicted in this case lived in the southwest corner of Harris County, the exact opposite direction and quite a long ways away. And the Melgar's house is located exactly in between the two. The point being that this particular team of home invaders are willing to travel. They went further away from home to hit Isabel and her family than they would have had to to get to Jim and Sandy's house. 
I asked Isabel to describe her house and neighborhood. She said that she and her family were living on a dead-end street at the time of the home invasion. It was a very nice, upscale neighborhood with about 10 houses on each side of the short street that ended in a small cul-de-sac. The neighborhood was off the main road and their home was just a few houses in. Sound familiar? Well, let me just make it very clear. Isabel and her family lived in a nearly identical neighborhood to the Melgar's home. No crime, a safe neighborhood on a dead-end street. So, we don't have to speculate if home invaders would choose a house in a neighborhood like this. We know for a fact that they did choose a house exactly like Jim and Sandy's. Now, let's talk about the time of the attack. According to Barnett and her doesn't-make-sense theory, the Melgar's house would have been broken into around midnight or 1 a.m. The Melgar's, according to Sandra, were awake, and it was like, I think, midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. In Isabel's case, she and her children were awake when the home invaders forced her husband to let them into the house at 1 a.m. So we have an occupied home with the residents awake in a quiet neighborhood on a dead-end street where no similar crimes have ever been reported at 1 a.m. And the similarities don't stop there. When I was interviewing Jim Clemente, I asked him why a home invader would choose to rob a house when someone was home as opposed to an unoccupied house. This is what he had to say. So you, you mentioned that if that was the case, if this person was following them, then their intention was in fact a home invasion rather than just a burglary. What is, as far as psychologically, what motivates someone? What is the, what are the reasons that a criminal would decide they would rather do a home invasion than a burglary? What are the advantages there? Well, for example, if they thought that this family had a safe or hidden jewelry or hidden money, that they wouldn't have to rip the whole house apart. You can accelerate the process by, for example, if you know it's a couple, you grab one of the family members and you threaten that person, and you get the other one to run around getting you all the money, and it's just done faster. You can get in and out. You're controlling the maybe the stronger one by threatening the weaker one. It's easier to control the weaker one, and then you use that person basically against their partner. So that's one reason why they might do it. Another thing is that it's it can be an indication that uh, they're really not thinking that much, that it's a, an impulsive act, that it's something that, you know, it's drug or alcohol fueled, uh, their inhibitions are lower, they want to get money maybe to fuel that, you know, addiction they have, or they just want the thrill of doing it. So it's there's a spectrum of different behaviors that can lead to that kind of crime. Okay. So Jim touches on a couple of important elements here. Let's start with the safe. He says that one reason why burglars would choose to rob an occupied home is because they may believe the homeowners have a safe or other valuables that would be easier to access with the residents at the house. We know that in the Melgar case, the safe in Jim's closet was something of interest to the home invaders. The blood pattern on the front and back of the handle indicates that they tried to open it. Now we can speculate and argue until we're blue in the face if that's actually something that was done by intruders as opposed to Sandy using the safe to stage a crime scene. But rather than do that, Let's see if Clementi's assessment makes sense. According to Jim, some of the reasons that burglars target occupied homes include the desire to gain access to a safe and the ability to use the weaker resident as leverage to get the stronger resident to comply and help them get to the valuable items in the house. 
So how does the Kingwood home invasion fit into Jim's profile? Isabel told me that the night her home was broken into, she and her kids were up late waiting on her husband to return home from work. When he got home, there were four or five men hiding and waiting in the backyard. As he approached the house, his attackers came at him with guns drawn. They forced him to let him into the house through the back door. Once inside, the attackers split up. One stayed with the husband, while the others went through the house and gathered up the rest of the family. His wife and children were taken into the living room and forced to sit on a couch. The attackers were all wearing masks and gloves, and only two of them had guns. Isabel and the kids were being threatened that if they moved, they would be killed, and her husband was told repeatedly that if he didn't comply, his family would be killed. And what were the home invaders looking for? A safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The home invaders kept insisting that Isabel and her family had a safe. They actually did not, but that wasn't stopping the threats. She told me that she and the kids were manhandled and threatened for what seemed like hours as the intruders insisted that if her husband didn't take them to the safe, they would kill his wife and kids. In this case, eventually Isabel's husband convinced them that there wasn't a safe and he complied with their every request and allowed himself to be tied up. And here's where things get really interesting. When I interviewed Colleen Barnett, she made the point that it, of course, doesn't make sense that home invaders would break into a house and not bring anything with them to carry the items out that they're stealing. The, the burglar, if there was one, there was no forced entry into the house. The burglar, if there was one, did not bring with him or her a backpack to take anything from the house. They did not bring a weapon with them. So it's not... There's no understanding of how they even got in the house, much less what they were doing in the house while they were there. They didn't have a weapon, didn't have a backpack, didn't have anything. When they left, um, if there was a burglar, they opened the garage door, which would have caused a, a big sound, and that would have alerted anybody to them coming out, and left the garage door open. Well, if they didn't get in through the garage, why would they leave through the garage? That didn't make sense. So let's unpack that. First of all, the garage door. Barnett is making a lot of assumptions here. Number one, she's assuming that the home invaders didn't have a gun or any other weapon. Why? 
because they didn't shoot anyone. Well, here's the thing. The Kingwood home invaders didn't shoot anyone either. Some of them had guns and some of them didn't, but they didn't use them. Their purpose was to be used as a threat. The last thing that any home invader wants to do at 1 a.m. in a quiet neighborhood is discharge a firearm, especially considering that they didn't have a car and they'd have to flee on foot. A gunshot would wake up everyone in the neighborhood. So the gun is just an empty threat, and there's no proof that the home invaders in the Melgar case didn't have one. To say that they didn't is nothing more than an assumption, just like the garage door. Barnett is assuming that the garage door was closed and that it was opened as a staging maneuver to make it look like the home invaders exited through it. But as mentioned previously, we have exactly zero evidence that the garage door was closed at the time of the attack. Sandy assumes that Jim wouldn't have opened it, at least not on purpose, but in reality, we have no way of knowing if it was closed that night. All we know is that it was definitely open the next morning. And Barnett also makes an assumption that the hypothetical home invaders didn't bring anything with them. The burglar, if there was one, did not bring with him or her a backpack to take anything from the house. First of all, we don't know if that's true. However, there is evidence to support this claim. In the garage, we find Liz's backpack containing an Xbox, games, and jewelry. So maybe the home invaders didn't bring anything with them to remove their stolen items. But does that make sense? Barnett asked the question, why would a burglar enter a house without bringing any supplies with them? Well, I'm not sure that I have an answer to that question, other than maybe they didn't want to risk leaving anything at the scene that might connect them to the crime. But really, it doesn't matter if we know why a home invader would do this. What's more important to find out is if they would. Is it as crazy of an idea as Colleen Barnett is making it out to be? In the Kingwood home invasion, the burglars didn't bring anything with them. Isabel was surprised by this when she recalled the events of the most tragic night of her life to me. She says that she estimates that the intruders were in the house for about two hours. During that time, one person kept her husband under control, and another kept Isabel and the kids under control. The other two or three burglars then ransacked the house, pulling out drawers and opening cabinets. They didn't actually take much. They were looking for prescription medications, cash, and small electronics. And she knows this because they were asking her where they were. As they would find items that they wanted, they would put them into Isabel's laundry baskets and her kids' backpacks and stash them by the door for later. But there was, remember, there's that backpack in the garage with, with jewelry, nice jewelry in the backpack. Why would they leave that in the garage? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Speaking of things that home invaders used from inside the house, they said there was like a red rope that was described as being around Jaime's chest. Was that correct? Yeah, it was laid on top of his chest. It wasn't like behind him. And it was like a, it wasn't a rope. It was like a cord. Okay. It was about, it was about the size, it has the width of a jump rope. Like okay. a, you know, one you would buy at Target or something. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't very thick. And it matched another red cord that was in a different bedroom closet okay um because what so I, that had to be something that the, again the burglar got from inside the house so Burnett has oftentimes made the argument that the fact that the backpack sandy's bindings and jim's bindings were items taken from inside the house is an indication that this could not have been a home invasion now to begin with we have no proof that the red rope came from inside the house we know that it in fact does not in any way match the red dress straps that were found in the spare bedroom But even with that being said, 
I don't disagree with the fact that all of the bindings came from in the house. In fact, I think that's probably very likely. And I say that because of the variety. If home invaders were going to break into a house with the intention of tying up their victims, and they brought materials with them to do that, I would expect to see a rope or cord, something consistent. In the Melgar's case, we see Sandy tied up with a belt from a robe and then a scarf. And Jim is tied up with a phone cord around his ankles and a red rope. All items that may be found around the house. The appearance is that the home invaders were just grabbing whatever they could find. And I also want to point out that what Barnett said in the interview is not accurate. She stated that the red rope was just draped on top of Jim and it wasn't behind him. That is absolutely false. The rope ran under his left leg, under his buttock, around his back, and then over his torso. Now, that's not necessarily relevant here, but I want to make sure to set the record straight. Let's see if it makes sense for home invaders to enter a home without any means to carry out stolen items and nothing on hand to tie up their victims. When the burglars entered Isabel's home, as I said, they held her husband at gunpoint and gathered her and her kids up and set them all down on the couch. And then they moved through the house to find items to tie them all up. Isabel and the kids were tied up with a variety of items. Extension cords, belts from robes, and phone cords. And her husband was bound with his own neckties one around his ankles, and another around his arms, behind his back. Now let's talk about what Jim Clementi said in the intro of this episode. He said that home invaders in Jim and Sandy's case may have done this before, and if they did, they probably made mistakes. Career criminals tend to evolve with each crime. They learn lessons and adjust their approach. In the Kingwood case, there were definitely some mistakes made that resulted in two of the offenders being arrested and convicted. So let me tell you the rest of this story. According to Isabel, once the intruders had her and her kids tied up, they put a blanket over the top of them so that they couldn't see anything. They didn't knock them out or put them somewhere quiet like a closet. They let them right there in the living room where they could hear everything. And during the entire time that they were being gathered up and tied up, they could see everything that was going on. So how did the Kingwood home invaders get caught? Well, first of all, only two of them did. The actual invaders did not park a car in Isabel's driveway. They had two getaway drivers. The four or five people inside the house communicated with the getaway drivers with walkie-talkies. They stayed in constant communication, and that's why they were stashing their loot near their exit so they could load it into the cars once they made their escape. The home invaders in the Kingwood case did something very smart, and then they did something really dumb. The items taken from Isabel's home didn't amount to much. They stole their kids' Playstations and PlayStation games, laptop, an iPad, and some jewelry. They were smart enough to force their victims to give them the passwords to the laptop and the iPad. That way, they could erase them and reset them so they could be sold. Smart. But what they didn't do is turn the iPad off. And they were not aware of the fact that this particular iPad was equipped with cellular service. Meaning, it was online all the time. Even when it wasn't connected to Wi-Fi. After what Isabel estimates was about two hours of ransacking the house, the burglars radioed their getaway drivers, two cars pulled into the driveway, and one of the drivers came into the house. 
a woman who was later identified as Siniad Gonzalez. Siniad entered the house and was yelling at the rest of the team to get moving. She seemed to be the brains of the operation. Her car was now in the driveway and the group needed to hurry up and get out of there. She gathered up some of the items and took off in her BMW and the rest of the team piled into a black SUV and they hit the road too. As soon as the burglars left the house, Isabel's husband was able to free himself from his bindings. He ran to the door and saw the two vehicles pulling away. He called 911 and freed his wife and kids. When the Harris County sheriffs arrived, they did exactly nothing. They didn't dust for prints, swab for DNA, nothing. They took a quick statement from Isabel and the family, and then they left them with a business card. It seemed that at that point, they really had no interest in actually solving this case. And much of what happened next was very much misstated by the local media. According to the news reports, the police tracked down Siniad while driving the getaway car. They pulled her over and found several of the stolen items in her vehicle. But according to Isabel, that's not what actually happened. After the police officer left the scene, Siniad's husband fired up his iPhone and used the Find My Phone app to see where his stolen iPad was located. When the Apple Wheel of Death stopped turning, the app showed his iPad moving down the highway. Immediately, he and his son jumped in their car and took off after the iPad. Eventually, they pulled it behind the black BMW and forced Siniad off the road. At that point, Isabel's husband got out of the car and confronted her. It was then that he called the police and he held her at the side of the road until finally the Harris County Sheriff's Office showed up and arrested her. Contrary to my own assumptions were based on the available court records, Siniad actually refused to talk to police or give them the names of the other home invaders. The Kingwood home invasion happened on February 26 of 2012, about 10 months before Jim Melgar's murder. Siniad was arrested on that same day and ended up bonding out on May 16th. She was out and free at the time that the Melgar home invasion happened. There was one more arrest made in the Kingwood home invasion, but it happened a year later. And that arrest is kind of an interesting story as well. Oscar Garcia was eventually charged in the incident and entered into a plea deal. He pled guilty to the home invasion in exchange for a reduced sentence of eight years in prison. It has always been my assumption that it was Siniad who fingered Oscar as part of the plea agreement. But again, according to Isabel, it's not actually the case. Siniad pled guilty and was sentenced to five years in prison in May of 2013, about five months after Jim's murder. Although she didn't serve any of that time because she was immediately deported back to Colombia upon her conviction. Oscar was fingered for the crime because he was identified in a lineup by Isabel's son. But as I'm finding with a lot of Harris County cases, that story gets a little dicey as well. Remember, I told you that the Kingwood home invaders were wearing masks. When I was speaking to Isabel, she said that the detectives, that got involved only after the story hit the media, wanted her to describe the attackers, but she couldn't because they were wearing masks. Then, throughout the course of a year, Isabel kept calling the sheriff's office asking for updates. They told her that they questioned Siniad's husband. He was described to Isabel as a, quote, white guy. And when the police first approached him, he jumped off a balcony and ran away from them. But then they eventually connected with him and then somehow cleared him of any involvement. How they managed to do that without any fingerprints or DNA, 
I have no idea. And then we get to Oscar Garcia. In 2013, the Harris County detectives asked Isabel and her family to come in and look at a police lineup. I'll quote to you exactly what Isabel said to me. Quote, My husband and I picked the wrong guy, but our 13-year-old son picked the right guy. End quote. Isabel's son identified Oscar Garcia as one of the home invaders after she and her husband, quote, picked the wrong guy. Evidently, the detectives had a guy in mind, and Isabel and her husband's identification didn't fit with their theory, so it was ignored. It kind of makes me wonder if Oscar was actually involved, especially considering the fact that the burglars were all wearing masks, and Isabel's son spent most of the incident with his head under a blanket. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's talk staging for a minute. Celestina Rossi, with all of her credentials and limited understanding of the crime scene, stated strongly from the stand that she believes the Melgar crime scene was staged to make it look like a home invasion. One thing that was noted by her, Maurice Carpenter, Sean Carazal, James Doucet, Jennifer Martinez, and Colleen Barnett, is the fact that the drawers were open, but they weren't dumped out. According to them, a clear sign of staging. But Billy Belk testified that he has seen a variety of burglaries. Sometimes, usually when the offender is young and more interested in vandalism, the drawers will be dumped out. But he has also seen many scenes where the offender simply looks through the drawers and leaves them in place. Jim Clementi sees the fact that the drawers weren't dumped all over the floor as a counter indication of staging. But of course, he probably doesn't sit on as many committees as Celestina Rossi. You see, the thing is that the drawers being dumped out all over the place That's something that you see on TV, which is where someone might get their info about how to stage a crime scene. As he put it in reality, it's usually economy in motion. There's no reason to use a lot of effort or make a big mess when you're just looking for something specific, especially when you're not in a hurry. In the Kingwood home invasion, the intruders had plenty of time. Once they were inside and had control of all the victims, They spent two hours looking through the house. They took some small things, but left a lot of valuable items behind. And in Barnett's world, that doesn't make sense. There was supposedly, there were televisions all over the house. Mm -hmm. There was um, an idea, or someone said, maybe the defense attorney said, that there was a a TV that was taken from the top, from the, the, um, from one, uh, like a table or something that was in the bedroom. Um, and so what there was, they couldn't prove that they had a TV there. They, I didn't know if there was a TV there. 
why would they take a TV? There's no car. There's no video from across the, the road about anybody leaving with a TV. And then walking down the street with the TV, it, that, that doesn't make sense. Again, to set the record straight, the camera across the street from the Melgar's house only captured the top portion of their own driveway. The street wasn't even in the frame, much less the Melgar's driveway. But let's compare what she's saying here to the Kingwood case. All of Isabel's big TVs were left behind, and there was no car in the driveway until the getaway drivers showed up at the very end. So maybe that does make sense. And now back to the drawers. Isabel told me that just about every drawer and cabinet in the house was opened by the home invaders, but none of them were in disarray. None of the drawers were dumped out, and for the most part, everything was pretty much in place. Almost as though the burglars opened them, took a quick look, maybe ran their hands under the clothes to see if anything was hidden, and then moved on. I want to make very clear here that the point of comparing and contrasting the events of the Kingwood home invasion with Colleen Barnett's statements and opinions is not to poke fun at her or disparage her in any way. At this point, I'm choosing to believe that Barnett based her case against Sandy on assumptions that she truly believed were accurate. If you assume that burglars never target occupied homes in nice neighborhoods, they always drive their cars into the driveway, they always bring all the materials necessary to tie someone up with them, they always dump out drawers and ransack the house, they always take all the items of value from the house, and they never leave anything behind, then I can see why someone would think that Sandy's story doesn't make sense. The purpose of today's episode is to demonstrate that not only does the Melgar's crime scene make perfect sense, but the case is eerily similar to another home invasion in Harris County that occurred just months earlier. In fact, I think there is a very good possibility that the Kingwood home invasion is a lot more than just a similar case. I believe that there is a distinct possibility that we are dealing with the exact same group of offenders. Here's the rundown of the Kingwood home invasion. A group of four or five men forced the husband to let them into the house at gunpoint at 1 a.m. The house was located on a dead-end street in a nice upscale neighborhood, and it was occupied at the time of the offense. Upon entering the house, the offenders tied up the husband with his own neckties in one location and the rest of the family with other items from inside the house in another location. The offenders used the threat of harming his family to keep him compliant. The intruders used walkie-talkies to stay in communication with their lookout-slash-getaway drivers. At gunpoint, they forced the husband to give them the password to their laptop and iPad. Not all of the offenders were armed with guns, but they all wore masks and gloves. The burglars spent about two hours in the house gathering items into the residence laundry baskets and backpacks. The stolen items were placed near the point of exit for when the getaway drivers arrived. The offenders wanted to access a safe, and while they opened nearly every drawer in the house, they didn't dump any of them out. For the most part, the content of the drawers seemed undisturbed. And Isabel was surprised that after taking all that time, risk, and effort, the offenders actually stole very little from the house. Only small electronics, PlayStations, PlayStation games, and some jewelry. And most importantly, as far as we know, all of the Kingwood home invaders were out and free at the time of Jim Melgar's murder.
The one difference between the Kingwood case and the Melgar's case is, of course, Jim's murder. Isabel's husband responded to the incident in the exact way that I would expect most husbands to respond. Comply with the attackers to keep your family safe. Liz Rose has told us that she believes her father would have complied with his attackers. In fact, he has instructed her to do just that if she were to ever find herself in a similar situation. We can always replace things, but we can't replace you. There is also evidence on the Melgar scene that would indicate that Jim was complying at least at the beginning of the attack. His legs were bound, it appears that his arms were either tied up at some point or were almost tied up, and there's no sign of a struggle anywhere except for in the closet, meaning there's no path of disarray indicating that Jim was forced and fought his way in there. But at some point, as Jim Clementi pointed out, Jim Melgar began to fight back. So we have to ask ourselves, what would trigger a man to stop complying and engage in a fight with someone who was holding a knife? The difference between Isabel and Sandy is that Sandy had a seizure. And when Jim hurt his wife in danger, all hell broke loose. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Fussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.